You are listening to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. It's time once again for another spotting session. Yay! <laughs> this time for Jan Tiersen's incredible music in the film Amelie. Now, we've mentioned in these last few weeks that Amelie is kind of a unique score in the way it was constructed. Yeah. In many ways, the final product is sort of put together by Jean-Pierre Junette and his editorial team. And that's distinctly different from the other films we've examined. What's going to be fun about today is we're going to hear some of the pieces that, you know, we've shared in the last several weeks. But basically what we've talked about up until this point is the majority of the original music that Jan Tiersen composed specifically for Amelie. And the rest of this stuff is comprised of other pieces by Tiersen and a few other, you know, pre-existing pieces of popular music that were sort of needle dropped into the film at the discretion of the director. And Tiersen's voice is so singular and also so consistent that the new material and the old material, they just live so well together. Right. You really would need footnotes or some inside information to kind of know the difference, I think. I think that's true. And the other great thing is Tiersen really knocked it out of the park with the new material of keeping it in the vein of the other pieces that Junette liked. For instance, that piece, uh, Le Moulin, that we played last week was definitely written in the vein of uh, La Dispute, which is one of the most reoccurring uh, themes in this score. And so I think he did a good job of trying to make new music that would sit alongside the others. It's a unique experience taking in the entire score, and we're going to get that opportunity with next week's commentary. Because it's not built around, say, a small set of motifs the way that a typical Hollywood film score is, we end up getting a lot of distinct musical ideas, Right, a lot more than I think a typical Hollywood film score. And they're also edited in many cases, sort of micro-edited to sort of fit moment to moment. The result is, yeah, I think really interesting. And in this case, extremely effective. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) It does almost work the way, like say a modern video game would. Sure, yeah. And I mean, even old school games where every level has its own theme and there's not necessarily motivic development and themes that are being developed throughout the score. It's kind of moment to moment, these individual little vignettes, these tiny little pieces. And what's great is with Amelie, you kind of get both and where there are these reoccurring motifs just because of how Junette will take the same piece, but play a different section of it. And it almost sounds more like traditional scoring methodology. But then also, since you just have so much of Tiersen's music to work with, the score ends up seeming as colorful and lively as the film depicts this world. You know, the movie making process itself, it's sort of an artificial act, right? We're taking these fragments of film that were shot in different locations at different periods of Mm -hmm. time, and we weave them together as though they're one singular narrative. What Jeanette is doing here is sort of how cinema is made and sort of how the editorial process works. And I'm so glad we get the chance to look at this film. Like we said, when we started out this month, this is a segment of so many firsts. Right. And I think today's episode is really going to illustrate that. Well, let's dive into the music here. The first piece of music that we hear 
seems to fade in almost out of the ether. And mm-hmm. that's actually how Tiersen produced the original track. This was an existing piece of music, actually from one of his earlier albums. And this plays throughout the opening narration, sort of the first bookend of the film. There's kind of a complimentary bookend at the very end of the movie. Well, let's take a listen to Je suis jamais allé. Picture that narrator's deep French voice, kind of walking <laughs> us through these interesting Parisian hotspots of the Such ocean. a great piece! Uh, I really actually love how groovy it is. It actually has kind of a Latin, almost salsa flavor to it once the track starts to develop. But right. the uh, the initial ideas, I, I just love that effect. You were kind of mentioning it a little bit, Marty. The fact that this piece starts off kind of quietly with a lot of this ambient reverb, and then as the piece starts, the reverb is actually dialed down. It's this crazy effect spatially. If you close your eyes, you almost imagine getting closer to the performers in a right. smaller space. It's it's very surreal, and it's something that does feel like what would happen in a film. Yeah, and when first seeing the movie, I think I attributed that to the design of the director and the filmmaking team. It just is so appropriate for really opening this picture. I like what you said, Will. Rhythmically, it's almost more of a Latin sensibility here, but that unmistakable instrumentation is so Jan Tiersen and is so very French somehow. Absolutely. Even the the sound of the strings themselves, they seem to be playing without a lot of vibrato, right? Which is a very interesting. And that's his violin playing, I believe. Yeah, it's very ethereal and light, and you hear a lot of ringy overtones. It sounds like something I could imagine just being in a concert hall coming out into the streets of Paris. This piece really just helps to set the tone for the film. We mentioned there's pretty outstanding opening narration that really kicks the film off. You really understand the tone of this movie in the first minute. Absolutely. I love movies that have a narration like that. If it's done right, you really feel like you're in good hands, that the movie is telling you a story, particularly right. if it's a film that's willing to indulge in a little bit of stylization. I mean, I really think the narration is a huge part of what gives Amelie its specific flavor. After this narration, we go right into the opening titles, which showcase the young Amelie. And over the opening titles, we hear Tiersen's piece, we'll refer to it a few minutes ago, La Dispute. But we don't hear it starting from the beginning of the track, if you're familiar with either the Amelie soundtrack or Tiersen's older albums. Jeunette starts it sort of at the halfway point when the piano takes over for the piece. It's already sort of tinging the tone of this film with something a little bit more dark, a little bit more brooding and melancholy. It has these very neat little chromatic turns to the melody that it just feels like it's expanding in opposite directions. One note goes lower and then the other one goes higher and it's kind of our harmonic field is pushing outwards, which tends to be especially effective later on in the film when we hear iterations where it's just solo melodica. And so the melody needs to communicate 100% of the chord progression completely unaccompanied. 
Boy, in many ways, you could call this the theme of Amelie. I think what we're going <laughs> to see today is there are so many pieces of music that could rightly be called the main theme of Amelie. And a composer would never make a choice like that if they were writing 100% original music for a film. What's great about this collective of new themes and old themes and all these pieces sitting together is that for the moviegoers, we just get a much more densely packed musical soundtrack. As our main titles conclude, uh, the narrator takes our hand again, kind of continues us through the prologue of Amelie's young life. Appropriately, our opening track resumes during that section of the film. The next piece of music that we hear begins as we're a little bit further into Amelie's childhood. She's being homeschooled by her mother. And Jeunette here mostly showcases the B section of this piece. I'm going to refer to our resident French pronouncer, Will Brueggemann, for the title of this. I believe it's called La Redécouverte. the first piece of music that we hear in Amelie that was recently composed. Yeah, it made its debut in Amelie, which is really neat. I'm not sure if this piece was specifically composed for the film. Yeah, it's interesting. There are some pieces that seem to get an early premiere that ended up being included on Jan Tiersen's following album that right. came out after the film. But for French audiences, this would have been brand new music. Well, and it really is perfect for Amelie's childhood. The sound of that toy piano is unmistakably childlike and right. you could really only associate it with something youthful. It's another one of those examples of I can't believe this wasn't written with this movie in mind. Right. Well, the next piece we hear in the movie is called Contine d'Etat Numéro 2. Uh, this is not actually featured on any soundtrack release for Amelie, but this is the music that plays as Amelie's mother actually pours her uh, goldfish into the river, if you remember at the beginning of that film. Yeah. It, it, this is such like a Roald Dahlian thing, but it just right. looks like the most miserable little goldfish. Yeah, and he's looking up at her, and he's halfway between uh, sort of a real goldfish and this sort of cartoony goldfish. And then the music continues to play on into the next scene, which uh, is Amelie taking photos with her Instamatic camera of the clouds. What's so incredible to me about the marriage of this music and the film is that the music here is, is so dramatic and soulful and sincere, right. uh, but in the film it's used for comedy and juxtaposition and is almost so heavy-handed that the, the tragedy of Amelie's childhood, I really feel you're meant to actually laugh at it. Yeah, I think you're... <sighs> 
it's that funny thing where it's both comedic it, and simultaneously is really emotional. Right, because you almost don't know how to respond. Something is right. so sad that almost like as a defense mechanism, you want to laugh at just like the sheer <laughs> tragedy of it all. And this movie is sort of teaching you the emotional uh, gear changes that you'll need for the rest of the film. Really, in these opening minutes, we're kind of taking these whip turns through emotions pretty quickly and these drops of very contrasting tears and music. But a very really sophisticated piece. I, I really love how spaced out all of the notes in that arpeggio are. And there's a very, very crafted in the sense of what parts of the line change, um, acquiescing to the bass and what parts stay the same. We get right. that beautiful, almost Lydian chord that's implied at the end with an incredible amount of dissonance. But yeah, not the only Contine track that we're going to hear today. The next piece of music that appears in the film uh, happens after Amelie's mother passes away. We talked about really fast sort of emotional turns in the film. They're at the church praying for a baby brother, I believe. And as she steps out of the cathedral, a woman that is committing suicide, jumping off of the top of the cathedral, lands on Amelie's mother, and she passes away. And as... It's so sad, but it's also like at the beginning of this movie, it's everything that could go wrong does go wrong. And so there is like a, a right, sick there is humor sort of, yeah, sort of a macabre humor. And, but also the pace of the film and the really colorful, almost humorous camera angles that Jeanette uses really, I think, help to kind of guide our emotions here. And this is the point in the movie where we almost kind of fast forward to Amelie as a young woman as we find her today. We see this shot of winter turning to spring. And as that's happening, we hear this piece of music. Passi simple. actually uh, quite an early track from Tiersen. I love how imaginative his production is. Really, there's so much storytelling yeah. in Tiersen's arranging Perfect and producing. cinema. Yeah, it was just, uh, like we mentioned before, it was just a matter of time this was meant to be. I believe this is the second piece of music we've played on Underscore that features typewriter. If you remember uh, Michael Kamen's score to the Terry Gilliam film, uh, Brazil. Brazil actually yeah. had that incredible piece that started with all that typewriter. I love typewriter music. Uh, <laughs> Dario Marinelli used the typewriter to great effect in uh, the Atonement score as well. Boy, this something something so musical. I also about like that. that it was so married to the specific accompaniment because you get those moments of rest. Dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Right. Unlike the uh, waltzes that we've heard so far in the last few weeks where there's that constant quarter note subdivision. Right, that sort of added lilt with that dotted rhythm. Boy, there's something very it. unsatisfied about that piece. It works perfectly in the film. Well, the next piece of music that occurs in this movie is something that we've already talked about. I'm talking about Contine d'un autre été l'après-midi. And this is one of those pieces you very well could consider the main theme of Amelie. I think it's so right. signature to this you know, film. I actually have been playing <laughs> this <laughs> quite a lot on the piano. It just really is kind of addictive. Yeah, getting it under your fingers, it's really... 
it feels so good. It really does. We talked about that at great lengths musically last week, and we mentioned that this is the music that plays during the during that iconic scene when Amelie is skipping stones. Um, but there's another moment. It's uh, maybe even one of the most iconic frames of the film. Uh, if you've seen it, it's Audrey Tautou looking at the camera, holding up a spoon with mm. her adorable little smile, and she's getting ready to crack her creme brulee. So the music <laughs> starts with that, and we go from creme brulee to skipping stones, two very iconic uh, moments in this film. So the needle actually drops during the most raucous, busy section of music, that really animated development of the theme. We might think of it as the C section, and it transitions back into the A section as we move to Amelie's apartment. Another example of how the music editing can actually recontextualize how we hear these different songs as score within the film. This is one of those pieces, uh, one of those tracks, we can say, that will pop up several times in the film, this exact recording. So there's a lot of ingenuity with Junette's approach with really starting the music from different points within the track, as he does here. The next cue of the film is our first instance of our primary theme, La Valse d'Amélie, the orchestral version. And we actually hear this as Amélie opens that mysterious box. And what's cool about this version, this orchestral version, is we actually start with this very interesting vibraphone texture that... Yeah, very dreamy and sort of blue It's very soft. perfect because this is the first presentation of Amélie's theme in the film. And in keeping with kind of the film scoring tradition... We're not presented with this melody in its definitive state. We're presented in a very muted, subdued color. So a lot of people watching the film might not even pay any note of it or might not notice the melody. But then the first time you actually hear that theme presented in piano or accordion, it feels so sort of a familiar frame. Yeah, because you've heard it before. And I also love the moment at which we're hearing the primary theme. This mysterious box is almost the MacGuffin of this movie. Right. Kind of the catalyst. And for there is a real story. charm to hearing that vibraphone. It sounds much more innocent and less melodramatic. version continues to play as Amelie lies in bed, pondering just what to do with this box that she's discovered. This ends up being a life-altering decision, as we said, the catalyst for the film. Our next appearance of music is a really special one, I think. Uh, Amelie is entering the subway terminal. Uh, It's fairly isolated, and we hear almost this ghostly sound, and it's clearly an old recording. It ends up being clear that it's coming from a record, uh, being played from a record player on the lap of an old blind man in the subway terminal, and it's this beautiful old French song. The song is titled Si tu n'étais pas, sung by Frehel, 
And this scores the moment when she first sees Nino, the sort of love interest of the movie. Let's take a listen. Such a charming little piece of music. Boy, I love it. And it's also, I think, so critical that we're hearing all the dust and scratches and the wobble and weave of that old record player. Not the last time we're going to hear that today. Uh, well, the next cue is once again a return of the Cantine de Notre Été l'après-midi. This time, starting from the very beginning of the track, we get that wonderful, we described it as a variation of the Alberti bass over that chord progression of the piece. And this happens as she meets the glass man. And the music here starts after he shows her her closet of his many uh, Renoir and Temps. Uh, he's been painting the same painting for 20 years, he right. tells on trying to recreate it. After this, we have another repeated cue, La Dispute, this time from the beginning with that lone melodica. And this is really an important moment in the film. What happens in the movie is that uh, Amelie finds this mysterious box and she becomes almost obsessed with finding its owner. It was a box that was clearly made as almost a time capsule by a, a little kid way back in the 50s. And so she's determined to find this man who is probably an adult now and give it to him. And <laughs> in typical Amelie fashion, she's very kind of coy and dramatic about how she right. reveals it to him. And she's afraid to sort of make a direct confrontation with the gentleman in her sort of clever way she leaves the box in a phone booth and as the man's walking by rings that phone booth and so as he opens the box we hear the strains of the melodica this is one of the most stirring moments of the whole film for me yeah. this actor's portrayal is just incredible uh, yeah. as he's sort of tearfully reflecting on and his because we've already heard La Dispute it sounds like a variation on a theme and because right. it's just that lone melodica it reflects the fact that he's just an echo of what he once was right. you're just getting a snippet of the past not the entire thing and it really plays off that nostalgia again it couldn't be any better if it was scored for the picture Ultimately, we end up hearing the entire track, including the piano section that we heard over the opening titles. Uh, the man actually enters into the bar and, um, and grabs a drink and is sitting next to Amelie and tries to kind of engage her in conversation, ends up sharing a lot about his personal life and his family. Uh, Amelie then walks out into the sunlight. It's this beautiful shot uh, sort of circling around here. And it's clear that she has this renewed sense of purpose and we hear a new piece of music accompanying this moment. Thank you. 
were listening to La Noye. This is this film's version of a hero's theme. (laughs) Boy, so true. Something so bold and strong about that that final theme as it kicks in. It's a really interesting groove where it either sounds like a fast 3-4, only emphasizing certain quarter notes, or you could almost interpret it as being in 4-4 with all of these triplet subdivisions. Right, or some sort of 6-8 or compound leader of some kind. And this plays as Amelie, with her renewed sense of purpose, enters the marketplace, and she again encounters that blind gentleman from earlier with the record player. And she takes him by the arm, and she's walking him through the marketplace, essentially describing everything that he's unable to see. It's a really, really charming moment of the movie. And really very beautiful. The track ends as the blind man is basked in a glowing light. So it's sort of fantastical uh, moment here, and it's not our our last in the film. Uh, Our next little occurrence of music is very subtle, but I so enjoy it. Amelie is preparing her dinner, and she's singing a song to herself, and it's the song that she heard earlier in the subway when she first spotted Nina. A very cute little moment and uh, kind of emphasizing the difference between the diegetic and non-diegetic music and also showing that Amelie really does have a fondness for that bygone era. Well, the next piece of music that we hear, not written by Tiersen, another just needle-dropped piece, but it is a piece of music that some of you may have associations with in cinema. I'm talking about Samuel Barber's infamous Adagio for Strings, one of the greatest pieces of the 20th century in my opinion it's an absolutely gorgeous piece of music it actually has been used in many different films before and what's fun is this is kind of like a movie within a movie Amelie's watching (laughs) this documentary on tv that morphs into this fantastically morbid account of her (laughs) own life seemingly set in the 30s and 40s which is a time when barbara black and white footage yeah Right, and hearing that theme in there, there is something kind of cliche about its use because it has been used quite often in movies. But a wonderful little instance, I think, and a great opportunity to have another beautiful piece of music. Shortly thereafter, Amelie Amelie encounters Nino again in the train station, but he runs just past her, and he's chasing after this mysterious bald man whose identity is sort of a running mystery throughout the film. And as he takes chase, first on foot, then on his moped, we hear this piece, which also is not included on uh, any soundtrack releases of Amelie. This is an older piece of Tiersen's, and we'll once again refer to Will for our pronunciation. I've never seen this <laughs> word before, but I would guess that it's Kimper 634. Here we go. This, I think, is another very memorable piece of Tiersen's. There's something about that violin melody and the way it emphasizes the major seventh that, to me, is, again, reminiscent of Koji Kondo. We mentioned that briefly in a previous episode. There is some unique overlap with Tiersen's sensibilities. and You could almost say this almost sounds like Mario Kart music because (laughs) it does sound like perfect for driving on a little moped.
Well, next we have our first instance of another one of our principal themes, L'Autre Valse d'Amélie, that we focused in on great detail last week. This first occurs as Amélie grabs that object that Nino's left behind. It's an album of photo booth takers. I love this. It's sort of a second MacGuffin that ends up kind of driving the rest of the film. And I love that with the first MacGuffin, we get the primary Amelie Waltz. And now with the second MacGuffin, it's a more activated Amelie theme. It's funny. The placement of music and the music editing in this film is given the same level of attention and symbolic representation that conventionally a film composer might apply to a spotting session. Very well put. I totally agree. The next piece of music that we hear, boy, just a lovely song, very signature to Amelie. This is the song Guilty, sung by Al Bowley. We won't play it yet because it features in a really pivotal scene later on in the film. But in that scene, like this one, it appears in the background of the Two Windmills Cafe where Amelie works. This is a really significant location in the film, and we get to really know the cast of characters in this cafe. And very much like Amelie's inner world, this cafe seems to be sort of lost in time. The only music we ever hear in this cafe seemingly comes from the 30s and 40s. Amelie puts another scheme into motion, setting up uh, Georgette and Joseph, which leads to some delightful comedy. Well, next we have another iteration of our principal theme, Valsa d'Amelie, this time the piano iteration, as Amelie sits in her bed poring over that photo album that she found earlier. It's another iconic image used on several posters, but this is probably, you would say, the first definitive version of Amelie's theme in the film. This has to be the moment when I would say the majority of audiences would really start to take note of the music. Right, and sort of identified as, yeah, central music to Amelie. Uh, The track fades out here. We don't reach the proper ending. And our next instance of music is something we've heard before. It's La Dispute again. Um, And also, like in the phone booth scene, it starts with the melodica opening section. I feel like that happens all over the place in this movie. I was really taking note of it the last time we watched it, of just how frequent... Uh, we have that solo melodica instance of uh, La Dispute. And again, it's yeah, and just between such a the La melody. Dispute melodica and the Le Moulin uh, melodica, we, yeah, we have a, quite a lot of that moment. Uh, this is set for a very different scene tonally. This is Amelie entering the grocer's apartment uh, very sneakily, and she's making some interesting changes around his apartment. This is a character that we've seen be very cruel to. Uh, this poor man, Lucien, who um, this Amelie is probably sort of the one of. thing she does that's kind of mean. But <laughs> I think in her eyes, she's trying to make the world a better place. Yes, he seems to be trying to sort of balance the scales of justice here, I think. Well, anyways, then we do end up hearing that piece we've alluded to, Le Moulin, starting with the B section. This is again when Amelie's sitting in bed trying to make sense of the album. 
After she falls asleep, the porcelain animal knickknacks in her room start talking amongst themselves, worry about her. It's this interesting little moment. It only happens once in the film when you have these inanimate objects uh, talking to each other. Again, you could sort of interpret it as her dreaming and just part of her colorful imagination. We then again hear La Rue Couverte, forgive Beautiful. my pronunciation, um, the A section of this piece, and this appears briefly as Lucien works the grocery alone, uh, seemingly with a spring in his step now that Mr. Collignon is asleep in the cauliflower. I always love the way that he pronounced the cauliflower. I really like this Lucien character. Speaking of Lucien, in the next scene when he's bringing some special groceries over for the glass man, we hear this next piece of music titled Aquai. Again... <laughs> This really feels like another principal theme of this movie because it's, it's it just so, so iconic. much appeal in such a small amount of notes. And it's really fun and playful as well. Uh, this track abruptly stops actually when Lucien mentions his boss, Mr. Collignon, and then it fades back in as they start trading insults, he <laughs> and the glass man. And then Lucien gets a little bit carried away, but yeah, I so love that character. We then see that the glass man, Amelie's neighbor downstairs, has received an interesting parcel. It ends up being this sort of mixtape VHS that Amelie has made for him. Uh, the first of two mixtapes that she ends up making. I love these. These are so interesting and actually say so much about her character. Uh, our next piece of music of Tearson's plays over the first part of this mixtape. This is edited together really well, where it almost seems as though this is music that would have been playing in the footage itself. And what we see is a horse running through the Tour de France, sort of uh, lapping all of the bicyclists. This piece has a very similar title to one we're already familiar with, with one small difference. Contine de notre été la démarche. This clip of the horse abruptly cuts off, and the next footage is really exciting. We're seeing this woman in front of a gospel choir, and she has this electric guitar. And boy, she is a mean guitarist. The woman is Sister Rosetta Thorpe. The song she's singing is titled, Up Above My Head. Sing it like that. Up above my head. I do forgive me You know, I really do believe I'm ready. I just so love that because <laughs> it's kind of like watching this old grandma rock out on guitar. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so fun. Amelie seems to find all of these neat little video clips from the past and will send these VHS tapes to her friend, the glass man. Uh, and it's just really so delightful seeing all these little pieces of history. It seems almost like it was the director's intention to present that stuff to the audience as well. 
shortly thereafter, we then hear another instance of the secondary waltz of Amelie, L'autre Waltz d'Amelie. Again, forgive <laughs> my pronunciation. Uh, my background was German, which I don't think plays very well. Maybe with you could translate some of these French words. Um, and this happens as Nino leaves work at the carnival. Uh, if you remember, he's dressed in this ghoulish mask and plays a role in this creepy fun ride. And he finds a note from Amelie left on his moped, and it's written on the back of one of the album photos. And she asks to meet at the carousel. The track then comes down in volume and continues to play as Nino has a conversation in bed with the man in his photos. I love that his world is also populated by these kind of fantastic interactions with the, the characters around right. his room. Well, as we mentioned, there it was a carousel that Amelie was going to meet Nino at, and the music that plays when they're at that carousel is fittingly enough a waltz, but this time not composed by Tiersen, composed by the infamous waltz king, Johann Strauss. This piece is called Roses from the South. Let's take a little bit of a listen to it, a Viennese approach to a waltz. God, I love Johann Strauss. <laughs> Boy, this is really, I think, one of my very favorite Strauss waltzes. It's interesting. Uh, you end up hearing a lot of the classic Viennese waltzes in the old merry-go-rounds and carousels, and that's certainly what's happening here. Uh, we hear this music as Nino takes a phone booth call from Amelie, who's at a nearby phone booth, and she sort of sets him on a little chase as is her way. Uh, and in the background, the carousel transitions into a different piece. This is the uh, Chirabirabin waltz. And then as he gets to sort of the end of this little chase, he ends up spying Amelie through these coin-operated binoculars, and then a Tiersen waltz takes over. The waltz is titled La Valse des Vieux Zots. cute and almost polka-esque, uh, that little waltz. Very colorful. This happens as he actually starts chasing her. But it's also really appropriate for the carnival, I think. Yeah, it's really nicely done. Uh, as he gets back to the same location from earlier, we just hear this music play, which I think is so appropriate. We wouldn't want any kind of conflict with the source music of the carnival, but it feels very appropriate for that sort of merry-go-round. Well, next we hear another instance of our primary theme, but this is actually the first use of the titular track, La Valsa d'Amelie. The sort of accordion-led version. Yeah. Exactly. This is the first point in the movie when we actually hear that, and this happens when Amelie springs down the stairs in her apartment. Uh, the landlady's door is open, and she pokes her head in and grabs some of the old letters, again forming <laughs> a whole new stratagem. Yeah. Thank you. 
The next piece of music that we hear is playing in the two windmills as uh, Georgette and Joseph are basking in their romance. Uh, we're not going to play every selection that is heard in the cafe. Some of them are, frankly, a little too faint to be made out. But this, I think, gets a nice little moment in the sun here. This is the song Whispering, and it's performed by the Radio Rhythm Rascals in almost sort of a gypsy swing style. the heavy vibrato on that guitar it reminds yeah, me of a beautiful. lot of the uh, production music that was used in spongebob squarepants oh wow um, well yeah well spotted. there's the, that there's, music is so there's good. one melody that's even kind of similar i remember from spongebob uh, it's kind of oh, a similar gosh, melody beautiful. very similar presentation i guess I'm, I'm dating myself you all know that i'm a child of the 90s now well with that secret out in the open uh we'll move to our next piece of music Soir de fête. This happens as uh, Mr. Collignon continues to mock Lucien, and Amélie sort of fantasizes uh, about defending him and sort of telling off Mr. Collignon publicly. Uh, she is not able to do Next up, we have a track that we discussed a little bit last week, Le Moulin. This is again with that solo melodica presentation that we've heard a couple times with La Dispute. That seems to be a really important, almost brush stroke for this film of just having that solo melodica. It's perfect to give the ensemble variety. Again, it sounds like a really tasteful scoring decision, almost right. as though Jan Tiersen was working with a fixed collective of instrumentalists. Well, I suppose he was. It's mostly himself, really. Playing yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, the, there's a really interesting effect about that solo melodica. It kind of draws you into the film because the timbre of the melodica is very present and biting and we described last week as having a youthful connotation but because it's so alone and there's no accompanimental context i think it's really effective great example of the power of uh, location and the tone of a scene and really coloring the music uh, in the phone booth sequence the lone melodica was haunting and emotional here it's almost funny as Amelie is alone in this apartment up to uh, some pretty interesting mischief. Our next piece is titled La Valse des Monstres. It's kind of cute how it rhymes, but it means the waltz of the monsters. Um, and this happens as Amelie begins Xeroxing the old letters that she found in her landlady's apartment. Again, a very clever little stratagem here. She faces the camera as she kind of arts and crafts her way, stitching together a brand new letter. It's this really sweet thing where um, her husband, the landlady's husband, passed away, and Amelie wants to do something sweet for her by making her think he wrote her one final letter. One final love letter. And I love that shot as, she's, as she said, well, arts and crafting. Uh, 
she seems to be holding up the scissors for the camera and then it cranes in a few inches and then she's cutting and it uh, cranes in a few more. Uh, One of my really favorite moments in the movie. Just, I love, I don't know, that was the first moment when I realized like, wow, she's a really nice person. She's spending all this time to just make other people happy. Our next uh, musical cue is another instance of the L'Autre Valse d'Amelie. Um, this is a piano version, and I was digging quite a lot this past week, and I don't think this recording has ever been made commercially available. Maybe we could make our own if it's just with piano. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. This happens after the landlady has read this letter that Amelie has uh, constructed, and she's lovingly looking at her husband's photo after having read the letter. Uh, and it's really a touching, beautiful little moment, and I think so well complemented by this great theme. Yeah, underscored by one of the best melodies in this whole mm-hmm. movie. I mean, it continues into the next scene with Lucien in the glass man's apartment once again. And in his apartment, we're treated to Amelie's second mixtape, VHS mixtape. Once again, the first section includes some Tiersen music, and it's been sort of compressed and edited to sound as though it was part of the original footage. And this is actually one of Tiersen's most famous pieces. Uh, it really only appears in this tiny little moment in the film, but it was enough to be featured on the soundtrack where it ended up reaching, I think, even a larger audience. Let's take a listen to Sur le Fille. masterpieces you can really feel his fundamental need for there to be groove whether it's a waltz whether it's in four that there always tends to be a very syncopated element with the subdivision and you can tell that even in pieces that don't have any percussion whatsoever which i would say is a bulk of this score right I love there almost seem to be tinges of a Massenet or some other great uh, French classical composers in a in a piece like this. Sure. The next piece of music we hear is uh, again La Valse d'Amelie, the uh, accordion-led version. And this is an interesting moment. It sort of touches on Nino entering the two windmills to meet Amelie for the first time. And it ends up being a sort of test of her courage. Is she willing to confront him? This track ends early because it is interrupted by the classic song, Guilty. Let's take a listen.
there's something about the combination of everything that's happening here, just how invested you are in these characters. This wonderful, old-fashioned, beautiful, melodious song. Right. Uh, it really feels like classic cinema here, this scene. Totally. It almost sounds like something you could imagine being the score to a movie, you know, maybe a comedy movie in the 1930s. Uh, but there, there's something so sweet that you can kind of also imagine that this is the kind of music that's playing in Amelie's mind. Right. So you really feel uh, so much affection for her in this scene as she almost gets kind of cold feet. Nino is anxiously waiting and Amelie just hides behind this glass. She she just can't seem to pull herself to confront him directly. And he ultimately asks her flat out, is this you? He has the photo of her in the Zorro mask and costume and she denies it. Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you as Amelie struggles with her decision to face Nina, we see a scene of her against skipping stones late at night. The music that we hear during this section is a piece uh, we've not encountered so far. This is, I'm guessing it translates to The Banquet. Oui, oui. We're getting towards the end of the film here. The next cue that we're treated to is another instance of that piece that <laughs> looks like Quimper 94. I believe it would be pronounced Quimper. And then I forget how numbers work in French. I feel like they, they count up to 60 and then they start. So it would translate to like 60, 10, 60, 20, 60, 30. Very confusing. So I, th- I think it would be something like 60, I don't know. But I may be getting it. Well, you impressed me, I can tell you that much. That was great. And this happens again at the subway station as Amelie enters the phone booth and she's able to get it to malfunction, which is part of her plan, as we'll see. The next music that we hear is uh, very much of a different character from anything we've listened to thus far, and that's because it's Nino at work. Uh, Without getting into too much detail, Nino works at a very different um, sort of establishment from Amelie, and it's very much rooted in the modern world, sort of a darker side of the modern world than uh, Amelie is uh, prepared for. And as he's asking for some time off from his coworker, uh, we could really describe this in a much more colorful way. But uh, anyways, he realizes a clue about Amelie. And we hear this interesting track, a much more contemporary sort of techno remix called The Child by Alex Gopher. What's interesting here, though, is it features unmistakable vocals from Billie Holiday. So I like that even in this moment, there's a trace of the old world. Them that's not shall lose. That's got his own. They don't come no more. Them that's got shall get. Once again, we have another instance of my favorite piece of music in the film, L'autre valse d'Amelie. 
the secondary Amelie's waltz. Uh, again, I know we mentioned it last week, but it's just such a delightful melody, and it really is part of the corpus of cinema. I just think it's wonderful. We hear this as the bald man is revealed to Nino, and he ultimately comes to know the mystery of why he keeps finding pictures of this man. I love that we're hearing the secondary theme of Amelie's under this, so that we're clear that it's the result of her actions and her stratagems that this is happening and she finally seems to work up the courage to meet nino but there's some chaos in the train station and he ends up getting away the next music that we hear is another instance of the main theme uh la valse d'amelie uh, the piano version one of the most striking instances of this piece in the film because we described this principal theme as kind of Amelie's dark side and her depression and L'Autre Valse as maybe being her happy, cheerful, optimistic side. Right. Well, this is the moment when she is back in her apartment just dejected and she feels like she's really missed her chance with Nino. And we're almost led as moviegoers to believe that something like that is gonna happen. We almost think maybe he's gonna start dating one of the girls who works at her coffee shop. Um, And so the whole movie is just setting this moment up for a real tragic presentation of her theme. There's an interesting moment where we get a window into her thoughts and it's this little split screen um, just to the side of her. And what she ends up envisioning is Nino finding his way to her apartment and he's going to sneak up on her and she has this sort of uh, curtain of beads into her kitchen and she pictures that he's just about to approach it and then the beads indeed move but it's only the cat and uh, she starts to really break down weeping and this is when we're deep into that flowing arpeggiated section that we've talked about of the piano rendition of this waltz but abruptly it cuts off and nino is actually ringing at the door what proceeds is i think the longest stretch in the film without music there's a little bit of a back and forth and the glass man has actually left a video for amelie imparting his advice essentially telling her you have to be courageous you have to go for this and ultimately the two do end up uh locking heads and meeting and boy that scene is so magical Uh, i think it's one of the most romantic and sweet scenes i've ever seen (laughs) she keeps you know it's kind of like that scene in indiana jones when he's like she where does he he ask yeah (laughs) she keeps asking him to kiss all these little places it's it's so adorable and our next cue another instance of amelie's waltz Uh, it's sort of the next morning as Nino lies in Amelie's arms I love the way she's holding him almost like she won a prize or something she's just so proud of herself he's like her little pet and I love she's just (laughs) she's truly so so happy and then we're led into a wonderful series of scenes catching up on some of the characters we've come to know we first see our quote-unquote failed writer and he actually notices emblazoned on a wall as he's walking through the streets a quote from one of his novels we then see uh brotodo is carving a chicken with his grandson and they're sharing the uh, chicken oysters which he had mentioned earlier and then the glass man paints a new renoir painting in a colorful style finally kind of exploring his own originality 
And then <laughs> one of my favorite little uh, subplots that happened in the movie, we didn't mention it, but Amelie's dad has this gnome who seemingly keeps sending him postcards from around the world. And it seemed to have been enough of an impetus to get him himself to leave the house and to travel, which uh, he and his wife had always planned on doing. So we see him taking a taxi to the airport and the narrator joins us again. And it's fitting we're hearing Amelie's theme. This really is her theme. And this whole sequence is meant to show us, look at the impact this woman has had and how she has changed the world around her for the better. I love the very end of the film. We hear a nice little variation in Amelie's waltz. Tiersen adds this uh, drum groove. You mentioned earlier, well, there's such a great sense of groove in this music. Such a wonderful uh, finale to this great music and this wonderful, unique score. Well, sadly, we have reached the end of the movie, and the last piece of music that we're going to talk about is titled Le Jour Triste, and this is the music that plays over the end credits. It's sort of a scrapbook presentation of the cast. Let's take a listen to the final piece of music in Amelie. whether Tiersen is playing the clarinet himself. Like you said, well, it's not necessarily that challenging of a part. Right. Even if he isn't known for clarinet playing, he very well could be performing in this. The timbre of the clarinet has this power of, of communicating somehow safety and stability and sweetness, and that's really how you could describe the ending of this film. I really don't think it could conclude itself in a more picture-perfect way. It just sets me up and makes me all the more excited for next week when we have our fourth commentary track for Underscore. Thank you all again so much for joining us on another spotting session. We know these episodes tend to be a little bit longer, but we really want to get all of the work out of the way so that we can just have fun for the commentary. I hope you've enjoyed this experience of the music back to back to back as much as Will and I have. There's really something so unmistakable about all of the music to Amelie and the choices of both Tiersen and Jean-Pierre Junette and anyone else that was involved in the musical decision-making of this project. It's really amounted to something that's so special and we use the term a lot, but this is just another instance of movie magic.
Well, that's all the time we have for today, everybody. We hope you'll join us next week when we sit down with the film in our real-time audio commentary track. Marty, do we have anything to plug? Fancy that. Well, I think we do have something to plug. As you know, Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers podcast network. Very true. A network that began with the Super Marcado Brothers video game music podcast, which Will and our brother Carl have co-hosted for how many years now? Five and a half years. Oh my goodness, five and a half years. And we were honored to be the second show in that network. But we have some exciting news. There is going to now be a third podcast in the Marcado Brothers Network. Marty, this is one that you are going to be a part of, right? That's right. This is a podcast that's going to be co-hosted by Matthew, Carlos, and I. And it's going to be covering a new part of the Marcado universe, namely Hong Kong cinema, and particularly Kung Fu cinema from Hong Kong. It's so great. Carlos is uh, one of our buddies that we met actually through because he was a fan of the Super Mercado Brothers. And we all got to meet up at MAGFest, this yearly video game music convention. (laughs) Carlos is is such a great guy. Matthew is Matthew Tusseroni, who those of you that are interested in video game music might be very familiar with his YouTube channel, Major Third. He does these incredible video breakdowns of specific composers and series. And we've had Matthew on the Super Mercado Brothers show before. So it's really kind of fun. This new podcast is going to keep everything within the family, so to speak. And yeah, we can't wait to share the show with you. It's called Heroes 3 Adventures in Asian Cinema, and it will be premiering Wednesday, July 5th. So the show's going to be coming out every other Wednesday. And for this Marcado Brothers Network, we were thinking Monday would be the video game music podcast. Tuesday would be Underscore and Wednesday would be Heroes 3. Sounds fun. Marty, where can people find out information about Heroes 3? If at all interested, you can head to Heroes3, all one word, lowercase, dot com. And you can follow Underscore in all manners of social media on Facebook, YouTube. You can send us an email if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions for the show. Our email address is theunderscoreshow at gmail.com. A special thanks to everyone that's left a review of the show at Apple Podcasts. If you're at all enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review that does help new listeners discover Underscore. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Until next time, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.